good to be together this afternoon to open God's Word together, to worship Him together, and I'm glad we have this time to do this. I uh, always enjoy being with brethren, and just it's comfortable in many ways. Uh, there, I know that there is love that I'm going to receive from you all, and uh, it's just a, a peaceful place to be, and, I, and so I'm uh, grateful for you all and for what God's done in your lives. We're going to talk about a principle that you see throughout Scripture. Really, it is everywhere. But it is very succinctly put in one particular place um, in Hosea 6.6. And the term that's used is that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And uh, we see it also appear in the New Testament several times. Uh, we're going to look first at how Jesus uses the phrase. I think that's one of our best places to go to understand what does this phrase even mean, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then we're going to primarily be looking at the book of uh, Amos and how the book of Amos really is all about this principle. It is a theme or maybe the theme um, that you see throughout the book of Amos as well. So turn uh, for a moment to the uh, book of Matthew, chapter 9 verse 13, or you can just look up here on the screen. Really, the book of Matthew is the only book that records Jesus using this phrase from Hosea 6. He uses it twice. Once here in Matthew 9. The context is that Matthew is just called, I'm uh, sorry, Jesus is just called Matthew, the tax collector. And he is eating at Matthew's house with tax collectors and sinners. Yet, the Pharisees are critical of Jesus about this. They don't think he should be doing this. In verse 11 of Matthew 9, it says, uh, When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. So, uh, Jesus told them, you need to go learn what this means. You've heard it before, it's uh, in the Old Testament, but you need to go learn what it means, because you're not practicing it, you're not living it. And if Jesus tells you, go learn what this means, you go and do it, right? So the question is, did the Pharisees go and learn what that meant? Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. In this context, uh, Jesus has been walking through the grain fields with his disciples. They're eating of the grain on the Sabbath. And uh, the Pharisees are critical about this. Look, it says in verse 2, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So Jesus defends them. He talks about certain uh, Old Testament uh, passages in defense of them. But then finally in verse 7, it says, if you had known these, what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent. So did they go learn what it meant? No. He said, first, you need to go learn what this means. But then he says here to the same Pharisees, I, I don't know if it was the same Pharisees, but it was the Pharisees that he spoke to here as well, as before. He says, if you had known what this meant, if you had gone and learned what this meant, you would not have been guilty of condemning innocent people. Condemning innocent people. So, the question is, in both of these stories, how does Jesus apply this Old Testament principle? The Pharisees were careful 
about their religious rituals, about their worship, but apparently did not care about the tax collectors, the sinners. They were quick to judge, quick to condemn others for not doing things a certain way. Jesus says that they needed to learn that God desires most of all mercy towards sinners, not judgment, right? Um, he said, you, if you had known what this meant, you would not have condemned the innocent. You would not have called the innocent guilty. Um, and that ultimately getting this right was more important than the worship that they were giving. We're going to see that super clearly when we open the book of Amos. Because this is really a serious issue, right? If we're guilty of condemning innocent people, that's going to come back on our own heads. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said essentially the measure that you use or the judgment that you use um, of others, it will be measured to you. Or right? you will be judged in that same way. So if we're harsh or incorrect in our judgment of others, right, then um, it's going to be a harsh judgment that we will receive. Um, you're familiar with that passage because right after that is where Jesus talks about taking the plank out of your own eye first to examine the speck then in your brother's eye. Um, and that if we don't do that, then we are not going to be able to uh, examine the speck in our brother's eye. And the idea, even there, I think, is showing mercy to that person rather than self-righteousness to take uh, in how we examine someone else, right? If the Pharisees had first taken the log out of their own eye, if they had first assessed their own heart, their own situation, they wouldn't have been hypocritical in their judgment. They would have been merciful in their judgment of their brother. If you turn to James uh, chapter 2, James chapter 2, he'll later echo the same concept. It's all, like I said, it's, uh, we see it all over scripture. You remember it, James addresses favoritism and that there were some who would come into the, the, the service and would not have you know, uh, nice clothes on, they would be poor, there were others who were rich who would sit in front, and uh, there was this division among them, and favoritism being shown. And uh, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2, James chapter 2, verse 8, it says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, then you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So at least the way Jesus applies this principle of I desire mercy, not, not sacrifice, is in dealing with others, right? In dealing with how we judge others. And here, the principle is that mercy triumphs over judgment. We ought to, uh, favoritism is the opposite of showing mercy, right? It's judgment without mercy. That's what favoritism is. And even if we got the rest of the law right, even if we did all the worship right, all of the rituals right, but we didn't, even if we broke this one single law, love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus calls the second greatest command, then we're, we're going to be guilty, right? Because it is judgment without mercy to show this kind of favoritism. It is a violation of love your neighbor as yourself. 
judgment, uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. But even though the Pharisees did not learn this, they did not go and learn this as Jesus told them to, there were some students of the Old Testament that I think did know this, that we see in Scripture. Turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Beginning in verse 28. It says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. To love him, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. On the screen there, I have just kind of a summary of the interaction that Jesus has with this teacher of the law. The teacher said, what's the most important commandment? He said, number one, love God. Number two, love others. There's no more important commandment than these. These are number one and number two, right? Of course, these come from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6, from Leviticus 19. The teacher said, you're right, and he repeats what Jesus said, and then finishes his assessment with, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus basically says, you're right, you've answered wisely, and you're not far from the kingdom. But notice that they both say exactly the same thing. At the end, Jesus says, there is no commandment greater than these. These are the most important commandments. Where that would have gone, and what the teacher says, he says this instead, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices which I think is basically saying the same thing. It was summarizing what Jesus had just said, only being a little bit more specific, right? More important than all commands, or maybe these specific commands, all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Again, I think this is exactly what the principle of I desire mercy, not sacrifice is. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is mercy, right? James calls this mercy, and it triumphs over judgment. And both... Jesus and the teacher summarizing what Jesus just said, say this is more important than all other commands. This is more important than sacrifices. This is more important than burnt offerings. Um, this is what is most important. Now, let me clarify that this is not saying that God never wanted them to offer sacrifices. Of course he did. He commanded it. They needed to do it. But to get the most important thing wrong is, uh, is extremely, extremely serious. And we need to understand God's heart in this, what he desires most of all. So if Jesus said to go learn this, and it is the greatest command, I don't think we can overstate the importance of what we're talking about this afternoon. Um, it is extremely important. And I, I just want to look at how this principle is applied in the book of Amos. This is just kind of a summary of what is the principle we're talking about, what is it we're looking for. And now let's look in the book of Amos for this principle. So you can turn to the book of Amos. You can actually start in chapter 7. We learn a little bit about Amos in um, chapter 7 that I think is relevant to start off with. So first of all, who was Amos? 
In Amos chapter 7, verse 14 and 15, Amos says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos was just a regular guy. He uh, was called by God to go and to boldly proclaim to the people of Israel what we're about to look at. Um, and this is something that ultimately all of us are called to speak up about. Um, this is not something that's only for the preachers or only for the elders or only for prophets or only for the professionals. This is for something for all of us to speak up about. Amos was just a regular guy. He was a shepherd and took care of these sycamore uh, fig trees. Uh, so he is just like every, any one of us. So let's look a little bit about what was the condition of Israel at the time. I think chapter 6, verse 4 through 7, gives us a good summary of what the condition of Israel was. By the way, this is probably written around the time of Jeroboam II and Isaiah, around that time. A very prosperous time in Israel. He says, you lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. When he says, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, he's using Joseph as a term to refer to Israel, right? He often uses the word Jacob as well. Any of those terms refers to Israel, the people of Israel. And this was, they lived lavish lives. Uh, they enjoyed every pleasure that they could get their hands on, but their priorities were completely flipped <coughs> because they did not grieve over the ruin of Israel. They were concerned about enjoying themselves, their flesh, and completely unconcerned about all of the problems going on in Israel. And I think we'll find that the big problem going on in the book of Amos here is the oppression and the injustice happening in Israel. And, the, and what that said about their hearts, about their condition and um, relationship to God. Uh, they did not follow this principle, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They, they essentially, you could say, flipped that completely and said, I, and uh, imagine that God had just said, I desire sacrifice and not mercy, because that's exactly how they were living. So the question is, is this something that we are concerned about? Do we grieve over the ruin that we see in people's lives? Let's take a look at um, some verses that talk about how they were behaving. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Amos 2, 6, and 7. We're going to be starting here and really just going through the book of Amos, looking at several verses that speak to what they were doing. It says, This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. 
I want to define just a term here that's used. It says they deny justice to the oppressed. Um, they, this is the opposite of showing mercy, right? Justice here, we often think of justice as like punishment for crimes committed, and it does mean that. Um, that would be maybe more like a retributive kind of justice. The justice we're talking about here, though, is restorative. The idea of those who are not being treated as they sh should, those who are not being shown mercy, who are not loved as a neighbor should be, um, and who are being denied really uh, those things that they deserve, right? We see the, sa the same principle in Micah 6, 8 that says, what does the Lord require of you but to act justly? To love mercy. Those two ideas are paired together there. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So these ideas are often connected of treating someone with justice and showing them mercy. Let's look at the next verse from uh, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. It says, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. So he's telling the enemy nations all around, the Philistines, the, Egypt, the Egyptians, to come take a look at the evil being done in Israel, as if it were, would surprise them in some ways. Like, they've become this evil that they even oppress people, they store up for themselves all these things they plundered and looted. Hey, enemy nations, come, look at what they're doing. Look how horrible it is. Even they would realize how wrong this is, I think is the idea. Look how wicked Israel has become. And they're not even grieved over it. They don't even care. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Samaria, by the way, was the capital city of Israel. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Amos is harsh, right? Uh, he, uh, I mean, God gives him these words to say, but these, these people, he calls them cows, right? These women, he calls them cows. That's uncomfortable, right? But they were, they were crushing the poor. They were, crushed, they were uh, taking advantage of the needy for their own pleasure. They didn't care about them at all. And it didn't even bother them, apparently. In chapter 5, verse 7, it says this. There are those who turn justice into bitterness. Remember how we defined justice earlier. And cast righteousness to the ground. And then uh, in verses 10 through 13, following that. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. I want to stop there just for a second. Not only are they mistreating each other, not showing mercy, not loving their neighbor as themselves, but they hate the one who does, who tries to do that. They hate the one who speaks up. We'll find out in a minute how they treat Amos, who spoke up boldly about this. But they don't want truth to come out. They don't want people to be treated the right way. Otherwise, how are they going to get all the, the pleasure, the things for themselves that they had been exacting from these people? that they had been taking advantage of. Their source of richness and all the things that they were taking is going to go away if they do that. It says, You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though 
you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. I want to particularly talk about that last phrase there, just for a moment. It says, therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Uh, I don't think this is saying that's what you should do. Amos wasn't. Amos was speaking up. He's saying, though, if you don't want to get hurt, if you don't want to you know, get into danger with, with your fellow man, don't say anything, right? Speaking up or an accusation is going to lead to danger around you. People don't want you to, to, to accuse them. They don't want you to say anything about what they're doing. They don't want you to speak up. This is a danger that society has become so corrupt um, that to speak up about doing the right thing is going to lead to possibly your own persecution, your own suffering. And note what it said right at the beginning of that in verse 10. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. That's how Israel had become. But like I said earlier, Amos wasn't silent. Look in, I don't have this up on the board, but look in chapter 7 just for a moment. In chapter 7 and verse 10. We read when Amos told about himself and how he was a prophet who uh, didn't start out as a prophet. He was a shepherd and God had called him. That's actually, when he says that, that's a defense of himself because in verse 10 of chapter 7, it said, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamorphic trees. But the Lord took me from, de- from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So, in the context there, uh, they were saying to him, Get out of here. We don't want to hear what you say. Stop saying this. Uh, I mean, you can see how anyone like would feel guilty uh, by someone speaking up. As long as we don't have anyone speaking up, we can get away with all this, and it's no big deal. But as soon as someone speaks up, we got to get that out, right? So uh, Amos was speaking out boldly against their injustice, and he says, "Get out." Um, and Amos is like, "Wait a minute! I didn't choose to do this. God is the one who called me to this, and I cannot stop. I must." say this. And so uh, the truth is the godly will not be silent. The godly will not be silent. Uh, though it might be in a sense prudent to be silent, uh, you'll preserve your, yourself in a way. The godly will not be silent. Let me look at, let's look at one more other verse before we move on from this. In Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31 in verse 8 and 9, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, <clears throat> says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Or some versions say, Open your mouth to the mute. For the rights of, the, of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly, 
defend the rights of the poor and needy. Advocate for them, right? Speak up. Even in a situation where you're in a society who <coughs> wants to continue the oppression, they want to continue the injustice, they want it for themselves, it's good for them, they think, and so uh, they don't want anyone to stop the system they've created for their own benefit, right? And he says, speak up anyway, right? Defend them, help them. This is what's right. This is what God cares about. And as we said before, he cares about that even more than some other commandments that, we're, that we'll look in, in just a minute. To, to do these other things at the expense or without doing, showing this kind of mercy and justice to people is uh, not pleasing to God. Take a look also at the phrase there um, in the following verses, in verse 14 and 15, it says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So that phrase there, just as you say he is, that struck me because they thought God was still with them, right? Even the ones who are oppressing, who are showing injustice, who are not showing mercy, who are trampling on the poor and the needy, they think God is still with them, right? They say he is, uh, but this is a good lesson for us, just because we claim that God is with us doesn't mean that he is. It's easy to deceive oneself, right? Are we doing what the Lord requires? Are we living the way uh, that he wants us to? Verse 15 there says, perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph if you turn and seek good and not evil. This reminds us of what James has said, that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. <clears throat> We'll look at two more passages that show this. It's just all over the book of Amos. You can't escape it. Um, in 6.12, it says, Do horses run on croggy crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. And one more uh, in Amos 8, verse 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may uh, market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. So notice... They, uh, they're still observing the new moons, the Sabbaths, the festival days, all the things that the law required for them to do um, by way of worship. But look at their lives and their hearts and their treatment of others. They have completely are lacking in mercy, though they still kept the Sabbath and the new moons. They, they showed up, right? But it was not pleasing to God. They were selling the sweepings with the wheat, like... Like if you're, uh, you drop some wheat and you sweep it up and it's like dirt and wheat, you know? Can you imagine trying to sell someone that? They didn't care about each other at all. Uh, and, and I think that's the idea here, that they lived lavish lives, but the ruin of Israel did not grieve them. The ruin of Israel did not grieve them. So you can see God's heart in all of this. And I want to look at how God felt about their worship. They did still observe the new moons, the... Sabbath, they still offered the sacrifices, but how did God 
feel about their worship. In Amos 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread, sorry, burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. God sounds angry in this text. I think he's this is clearly sarcasm. He he's not telling them, I want you to keep doing this, right? But he's using sarcasm to scale them and to just expose their arrogance in their worship, right? They did these things and they boasted about them. I mean, they had all the wheat and the wine and all the stuff to offer anyway, right? They had taken it from all the poor. Um, they could offer this to God now. But again, utter lack of attention on how they treated others. This last uh, one about how God felt about their worship, I think, is particularly powerful. In, verses, in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What does God desire? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God gets really specific about what he wants. I don't want your worship. I want you to show justice, righteousness, mercy to others. That's what he wants more than anything else. And in the, in the circumstance where they are not showing those things, the worship is meaningless, right? Now, worship is a wonderful thing. I'm not, don't, get, don't get me wrong here. Uh, worship is something that God does love. But when we are not showing justice, mercy, kindness to others, he says, get that worship away from me. I don't want to hear your songs anymore. You're wasting your time. And I, Have we ever considered the fact that if we don't get this right, that we could be completely wasting our time today in our worship of God? Worship is ultimately not God's greatest desire for us. What does the Lord require then of me? but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so in our worship today, let's make sure that we are offering to him the fruit of righteous and just lives that show mercy to one another, or we could be completely wasting our time here today. So what is God going to do all about this? They were not grieved. They were not doing anything about it. So what is God going to do about it? This, I think, shows how passionately God felt about the wickedness that was going on. God was not going to let this just keep going on. Psalm 140 verse 12 says, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. If no one else is going to do it, God certainly will. This is his heart. So if you look in Amos 3.15, he says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house, the houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. God's going to take all the lavish things that they had trampled on the poor to get, and he's going to demolish them. They aren't going to live in them anymore. Look at the next verse in Amos 4, verse 12. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, 
prepare to meet your God. That's scary, right? Saying, um, I he's like an angry lion who's, uh, in, in another part of uh, Amos, he talks about tearing them apart, and the only thing you find is just a piece of an ear. Like, he's going to completely demolish them, so they need to prepare to meet their God, who's angry about this. In Amos 6, 7, it says, Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. And finally, in 8, 8, and uh, 7 and 8, and as well as verse 10, it says, The Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So in the style of judgment against Egypt, he's now going to bring that same judgment against Israel. What had Egypt done? Enslaved the people of Israel. Now they had enslaved their own people, and God's going to bring judgment on them. And he says, I will never forget this. This, is, this grieves God to the very core, and he will never forget it. He takes it super seriously, because it is the most important thing that he wants of them, is that they love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that they love their neighbors themselves, that they act justly, should love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. He desires mercy not sacrifice. And I think sometimes I have not taken this as seriously as I ought to. I've not seen, I, I've thought that God wanted my worship above all else and is, it didn't really matter so much that I was showing mercy to my neighbor or that I was loving others as long as I got my worship right. But I think it's that's completely the opposite of what he's saying here. Sometimes I think, too, I've gotten a little bit jaded, right? Like, well, what can I really do about all the oppression and issues going on in the world, right? I can't really do anything about it anyway, so I shouldn't. That's not really what's most important anyway. That's not what God says, right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And um, it deeply grieves the heart of God when, and it, and it should us as well, um, when these things are going on. So let's uh, see the heart of God in this. Speak up. Say something about it. Care about people. Show mercy to each other. Um, and again, I, I start off the, the sermon saying that that's one thing I love about being here is because uh, we do show that mercy to each other. We do love one another. And uh, that encourages me, it encourages me so much because I think the worship then that we offer to God is pleasing. And what a wonderful thing that we can... Uh, offer the fruit of righteous lives up to God, and that he's pleased by that. And uh, God loves worship from merciful people and those who uh, understand this concept that he, that he teaches us. So that's what I wanted to leave with you um, this afternoon. I hope that's been encouraging. And to think about, to challenge you, right, to, to live lives of showing mercy to one another, of speaking up for those who are oppressed, who are needy, um, who are poor, and uh, to, in that way, please God. Uh, if there's anyone who is subject and wants to uh, talk about anything, we are here for you. That is, we are a community of mercy and love, and that's why we're here. So you can come forward as we stand and sing.